Could you please take your Bibles and open them with me to Colossians chapter 2 this morning, verse 13. One of my favorite passages in this letter, verses 13 through 15. Very clear, meaningful, powerful passage of Scripture. I want to begin by relating to you a... uh, an account that many of you, if you've had children, will probably identify, not for the good, um, but you'll understand. Jamie and I once had friends uh, not too many years ago who had their first child. And after about a year or so, uh, in a few months, some change, they were reminiscing about life. And the mother said to the father, what was life like before Our child, things are so different now. They've changed so much. To which the father who was laying on the couch watching TV replied, well, I haven't thought they changed that much at all. That depicts parenthood in the early stages of infancy where mothers' lives change so drastically and fathers are primarily aloof about what's going on. Uh, When you're nursing and caring and waking up throughout the night for a child, things are different. Uh, That doesn't happen much for the father. I've thought about that throughout the years now that Emberly is about to be three. And I've understood that to some degree. Um, For one individual in that account, the child meant a comprehensive change. Everything in life was different. For the other, it only meant a partial change. There was an addition in the house. Somebody to compete with you for food. That's about it. The Bible talks about salvation in a very comprehensive fashion. When the Bible talks about belonging to Christ and following Christ, it talks about your whole life being changed. It talks about everything being transformed. When you wake up in the middle of the night and what you think about should be influenced by the gospel from the smallest moments and matters of our lives to the greatest decisions we could ever possibly make. Everything for the Christian, is determined and influenced and changed and transformed by this comprehensive salvation. In other words, when the Bible talks about being saved, it doesn't talk about a partial salvation. And it doesn't talk about a small transformation. That's why God is often referring to us being new creatures in Christ. And that's why God often talks about our hearts needing to be Redeemed, or as we saw last week, even circumcised. Our hearts need to be changed because the very depths of who we are, at the very core of us, is where the salvation of Christ applies and where it begins to do its transforming work. It's a comprehensive kind of salvation. That's what I think Paul begins to get at here in verses 13 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2. He's reminding these Colossian Christians of their salvation in Christ. And he uses terms over and over and over again in this passage that indicate just the comprehensive nature of Christ transforming us, of Christ saving us. Now, real quickly, let's remind ourselves of the context. Verse 8, Paul has begun here in this new thought in this letter, this portion of this letter, reminding and in fact instructing and urging these Colossian believers not to be taken captive. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Make sure, he says, watch out and make sure no one carries you off as plunder by some good-sounding argument that's not founded in Jesus. Why? Because verse 23, these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Watch out. Make sure no one carries you off as a captive, as a prisoner, with some good-sounding thought, good-sounding teaching, good-sounding argument that's not founded in Christ. Because when it comes down to the end of it, those good-sounding arguments, they may appear to be wise and profitable, but they really don't address your greatest need. And so his whole point here has been, remember Christ. Verse 10, your field in Christ. Verse 11 and 12, as we looked at last week, you're transformed by Christ. Verse 13 and 14, this week, you're pardoned by Christ. Verse 15, you're victorious in Christ. You don't need anything else. Our Savior is sufficient. Our Savior addresses our greatest need. And these false teachings that creep up that aren't founded in Christ, whether they be systems of of merit, systems of work, or, or systems of attitude, whatever it is that's not built upon faith in Christ alone by the grace of God alone is a false teaching that will not address the deepest need of your soul. Only Christ does that. So verses 13 and 14, Paul reminds them of this greatest work of God, we might call it. This full and comprehensive forgiveness that's found in Jesus to remind them yet again, He is addressing everything that needs to be addressed. You need not turn anywhere else. So look with me in verse 13. He writes and says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul uh, changes tones here a little bit at the beginning of verse 13 and he becomes intensely personal. This uh, transition phrase, and you, is the spiritual equivalent of looking a person in the eyes and directing your every thought and every intention and every action towards them. He would have the Colossian Christians here not be mistaken. I am writing and I am talking about you. Personally, we ought to glean the same lesson as our brothers and sisters some 2,000 years ago. The truths we find in these verses are not truths that are, are true for somebody else. They're true for us. What we read of in these verses applies not to the, just to the visitor or just to the unbeliever or just, just to the person a few seats down. The, the things Paul writes about in verses 13, 14, and 15 are true for you. And they're true for you in one of two degrees. They're either true for you as an unbeliever in one sense, or they're true for you in the positive sense that he writes, they're true for you as a believer. 
But nonetheless, he's writing and he's directing these things in a personal fashion. This is true for you. Reflect on the inside and examine yourself and understand what I'm writing and apply it directly to your own heart. You realize that you have an enormous responsibility to be a good sermon listener. When preaching occurs, it's not a one-way street. And it's not a one-person effort. The listener has a responsibility to be a good listener. And being a good listener is not being naive or reckless to think that the pastor knows every ounce of application for your own life. Being a good listener is letting the text be personal to you and wrestling with it in your soul. And that's what Paul's getting at here. You. I'm talking about you. And as he does, as is customary for him, before he gets into the forgiveness of God, he reminds them of their desperate state apart from Christ. So this is true for you. This is true for me. Apart from Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The Bible often talks about death in relation to sin. In fact, the most famous verse in such regard is Romans 6.23, isn't it? For the wages of sin is what? Death. That means all sin can yield to you, all sin can give you is death. The only earnings, the only reward for sin in your life is death. And that's inescapable. John MacArthur has a pretty good uh, summary of spiritual death. I thought it was relatable and understandable. I'll read it to you. He says, To be spiritually dead means to be devoid of any sense. Unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. Just as to be physically dead means to be unable to respond to physical stimuli. It is to be so locked in sin's grasp that one is unable to respond to God. The Bible and spiritual truth make no sense to one in such a state. Those who are spiritually dead are dominated by the world by the flesh, and by Satan. And they possess no spiritual or eternal life. Spiritual death is a comprehensive sort of death. You may be walking and talking and breathing and thinking and, and all those things that come with being physically alive. But where it matters most in terms of your spiritual soul and your relationship with God, you are comprehensively, entirely dead. Devoid of all senses. Unable to respond to any kind of spiritual stimulus. And Paul writes and he says, remember, this is who you were apart from Christ. For the unbeliever, it's still who you are. But for all of us, we would do well to remember where Christ has brought us from. This is who we were before God regenerated our souls, before God shed His grace on us, before God's face and, and love shone on us through His Son, Jesus. This is where we were dead. Entirely, comprehensively, without any spiritual life. 
Paul goes on in verse 13 to tell us why we're dead. He first says we're dead in our trespasses. Notice again the personal language, dead in your trespasses. That's a term of ownership. That's a term of responsibility. It's your sin that makes you dead. That ought not be lost on us. It's not the fact that you weren't raised in a Christian home. It's not the fault of your parents for not sharing the gospel with you that you're dead. You're dead because of your own sin. You're dead because of your own transgressions. You're the owner of your sin. You're responsible for your actions. And Paul says, you, personally, were dead in your sins. That word transgressions often primarily refers to acts that we commit. The deeds that we do. Deeds of unrighteousness or acts of sinfulness. And we can take that and, and, and make it as specific as we want. It falls down to the things that we do with our hands or the things we don't do with our hands. The things we say with our mouths or the things we don't say with our mouths. The way we conduct ourselves in behavior and in action, externally speaking, or the ways that we don't conduct ourselves. Paul writes and he says, you are dead in your sinful acts. Your wicked deeds have condemned you. Your sinful actions. Every lying word, every, every gossiping word, every word of slander, every lustful look, every moment of anger and bitterness and resentment. Every time you kept your mouth shut when you should have shared the Gospel. Every time you should have rendered glory and worship to God but didn't. Every time you took credit for something only God should get credit for. The things that we say, the things that we do, the things we don't do, those are the things that you are responsible for and that make you dead spiritually. That make you separate from God, unable to respond to His love, unable to understand His truth, unable to relate to Him. But this death is a comprehensive death because the sin that Paul talks about here is a comprehensive sin. It's not just your sinful transgressions or trespasses that have made you dead. He says you're also dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now some people take this phrase to mean uh, that, that you're Gentiles. Um, and truth be told, that's the most common use of the phrase. We find the, a very similar phrase in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, when, when the Gentiles are being referred to there in Ephesus, and, and Paul calls them uncircumcised of the flesh. And so some people read this, and they take the very common, very standard interpretation all throughout Scripture and say that means Paul's saying you're dead because you've, sinfully, you've committed sinful acts and you're dead because you're a, a Gentile, which means you're separated from the covenant of God, separated from the law of God, separated from the word of God. I don't think that's what he's saying. Since Paul has just used the term circumcision in verse 11, I think the context overrides the normal rendering of that phrase. In verse 11, the circumcision he's just referenced, if you look up, is a circumcision made without hands. It's purely and totally spiritual. 
And just because the phrase, putting off the body of the flesh, is different from uncircumcision of your flesh, I don't think Paul's intending different things. I think the context stays the same. There's no indication of a change. I think Paul is again talking about, in verse 13, your heart. You're uncircumcised in your flesh. Which means, you're still in your sinful heart and nature. So now we see the comprehensive reality of this spiritual death. You're not only dead because of the sinful acts you commit. You're dead because of your sinful heart. You're dead because at the very core of who you are, apart from Christ, you're prone to sin. You're prone to corruption. You're prone to rebellion. Mom and dad didn't teach you to disobey God. You disobey God because you're a sinner. The problem of sin is not just in what we do. The problem of sin, church, is in who we are. The problem of sin is not just on the external like an old pair of clothes. The problem of sin goes deeper than you and I could ever imagine. Our thoughts are corrupted. Our desires are corrupted. Our motives are corrupted. Jesus says there is none good but the Father. That's because at the very depth of all of us, there is sin. Paul says you're dead because of it. You're not just separate from God because of the things you do. You're separate from God because of who you are. Again, that's why the Scriptures so commonly use the language, you need to be made new. The old needs to be taken off and the new needs to be replaced. There needs to replace it. That's why when God talks about in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, He talks about the new covenant that's coming through His Son. He talks about giving a new heart. In Ezekiel chapter 36, I'm, I'm taking out that heart of stone and I'm replacing it with a heart of flesh. I'm making you new at the very core of who you are because at the very core of who we are, we're sinful. Douglas Moo in his commentary on this verse says, Paul attributes spiritual deadness both to the actual definite transgressions we commit and to the impure carnal disposition which prompts us to commit them. He goes on to define the sinful nature as that sinful impulse that dominates the body and the life of the non-Christian. And then he goes on to say, this uncircumcised flesh is the condition that Christ's circumcision in verse 11 removes. So when it's not removed, when you're still in your sinful self, and when your heart hasn't been changed by God, you are dominated by these sinful impulses that dictate your actions and your thoughts and your deeds and, and so on and so forth, then you are still dead in your relation to God. It's a very sobering reality, isn't it? In fact, the intention of such truth, as, ex as explained in Scripture, is to leave you very desperate and hopeless and frightful. 
the right response to such a verse is to say, what do we do? And who can be saved? Because when the Spirit of God works in your heart to help you understand such a text as this, you come to the realization and the conviction to say, I am covered. And there's nothing I can do. I'm covered in sin. I'm wicked within and without. I have no good within me. Psalm 16, verse 11, or verse 2. I can't remember which one it is. I'm memorizing both. But one of them says... Lord, apart from you, I have no good. And I don't take that to mean just in the things I have in life as in possessions. I take that to mean even in my thoughts, my, my disposition, my person. Apart from you, God, and apart from your redeeming work, I have no good in me. Within and without, I'm sinful. Now, let me, um, you're not going to like me, but let me take you to a few other passages to push this a little deeper. Because I'm convinced God saves through first convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment and exposing such things is what He will use to redeem the heart. So let me, let me take you a little bit away from Colossians 2 for a moment. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, please. I'd like to take you to a few passages just to make you squirm and be a little bit more desperate. Remember, Paul is writing very personally here in the first part of verse 13. So when you read these things, don't assume they don't apply to you. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's, a, that's an Old Testament law. Verse 29, How much worse punishment then do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. So what he's saying is, if this is the punishment for disobeying Moses' law, how much worse will it be for, for casting aside Christ and the Spirit's prompting? Verse 30, For we know Him, God, who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, who said, the Lord will judge His people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because God will not let sin go unpunished. 
The justice of God will not let sin be ignored. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God apart from Christ because God will deal justly with those who are dead in their sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. If you flip over just a few pages, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. I'm taking you to very familiar texts. None, none of these for some of you will be a surprise. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. No creature, that includes you and I, no creature is hidden from His sight, God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Oh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God apart from Christ. To have rejected Jesus and disregarded the Gospel. To die and fall into the hands of the fearful, uh, fearfully fall in the hands of this living God. It is a frightening thing. And on top of that, you have to give an account to Him. And certainly it's not just an account of the things you've done and said and not done. It's an account of the things of who you are. The, the general disposition of your soul, right? Romans chapter 3. Let me just flip over there. You can listen. I, I want to move quicker. But, but to keep pushing it in. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, verse 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, uh, quoting several of the Psalms. None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside together, they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, on and on and on. Verse um, 23 of Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So just in case you thought these things weren't true of you, they are. In fact, Paul's whole argument in the first part of Romans, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, is God's going to punish sin and unrighteousness. And oh, by the way, you're sinful and unrighteous. Don't gloss over such truths because that's the path to, to salvation as, as painful and, and stinging as it may be. Old Testament, Jeremiah. You know where I'm going, some of you, with quoting Jeremiah. Chapter 17, verse 9. God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Why? Because it is fully corrupted with sin. Fully. And it is deceitfully wicked to the point that it will convince many they are saved when they are not. Ephesians, just right next to our letter that we're studying in Colossians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is a, a huge parallel to Colossians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says almost the same thing. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's Paul's Ephesians 2, 1-3 description of life apart from Christ. 
It is the same as Colossians 2.13. Dead, comprehensively, entirely dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Both because of what you've committed, both because of who you are, you are fully dead and there is no escaping it. You have to stand before God and give an account of such things. You will be judged by the righteous judge. And if you do not have Jesus, then you're dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And it's in that state of deadness you have to stand before God. Is your heart heavy yet? But there's good news. Paul never leaves us hopeless. Verse 13, we also see God working. Apart from Christ, you're this black, pitiful, disgusting, dead creature. But God makes us alive together with Christ. Scriptures bring us to the lowest place in dealing with ourselves truthfully. And in dealing with our sin truthfully, it brings us to the lowest, desperate, frightful place. And then for those whom the Spirit is working in, it instantly ushers us to the highest of highs. For those who were dead in their acts and in their soul, who trusted in Christ, God does a work. The, the subject radically changes here in Paul's writing in chapter 2. It goes uh, to focus exclusively, mainly, primarily on God. Now, we stop talking so much about us and we start talking about God. God does something. And, and it's intensely clear here in the transition that it's God's work alone that does something. God is the initiator. And God is the conductor. And God is the accomplisher of your salvation. God made. God is at work. Not you. Not me. And not a work or a ritual or a rite. God is at work. God does something extravagant. God does something miraculous. God does something wonderful. Notice here in this passage... There is no discussion here of faith. There is no discussion of confession. There is no discussion of prayer. There is no discussion of repentance. Those things are implied as we understand the rest of the New Testament. The only thing to discuss here is God's activity in saving humanity. This dead, sinful humanity, God interrupts and intervenes in and it says He makes us alive. He breathes into our souls life. As comprehensive as our death and our sin is, God's grace is also comprehensive. In Romans chapter 6, we see this very odd sequence in a statement. Conduct yourselves as those who have been brought from death to life. 
in normal vocabulary and in natural conversation, we never talk about going from death to life. We only talk about going from life to death. Because you're born first and then you die. But for the Christian, you're dead and then you're made alive. You go from death to life. And this spiritual life is just as comprehensive again as we talked about the death. The spiritual death means you're unable to respond to God. means you're unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. means you're unable to understand scriptural truth. But when you're made alive, you're brought to relation with God. You're given the Spirit of God. You're understanding the truth of God. You're called to enjoy the presence of God. You're able to walk with God and serve God. You've been quickened to life. And you've gone from the grasp of sin and Satan and now you become the possession of a loving Heavenly Father. Notice this life is based upon, dependent upon your union with Christ. You're made alive together with Him. Which means if Jesus isn't alive, you're not alive. Which is why we treasure the resurrection. Which is why we adamantly defend the resurrection. If Jesus isn't living today, you're not living today. If Jesus isn't living tomorrow, you're not living tomorrow. But the fact that Jesus lives eternally means you live eternally if you're united to Him. The only way we have eternal life is by being connected to the One who lives eternally. Your union with Christ is the very center of your salvation. It's the very center of the, of the pardon you need for salvation, the forgiveness of your sins. It's the very center of your hope of eternal life with God. You are made alive by God together with Jesus. Not something else. Whatever that else may be. For Paul, that's what he's writing about here. It's not these false teachings being propagated your way and, and spun and, and sent your way. It's only by Christ that you're made alive by God. It's only through Jesus that you have eternal life. It's only through Jesus that you've been transformed from death to life. Not by your baptism and not by your church attendance and not by your tithing and not by your scriptural understanding and on and on and on and on down that list. Only through Jesus do you have life. Our union with our Lord is the most glorious truth of Scripture. What a wondrous gospel thought that God would take rebellious enemies who are dead and opposite of Him, unholy, unrighteous, ungodly, and He would then save them and tie them, bind them to His Son, Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. If we say being a Christian is just forgiveness, we stop far short of a glorious privilege. Being a Christian is being bound to Jesus with a knot that will never be untied. God intervenes. God interrupts. God initiates by His own pleasure, His own will, His own desire. He acts. And what does He do? He ties you to His beloved righteous Son and therefore gives you life. So all of that disgusting death we've talked about before, it's no longer true for the Christian. How does He do this? How does He make us alive? Man, let's, let's speed up. How does He make us alive? 
He does so having forgiven us all our trespasses. Let's just take a note on the word all. All your trespasses. He changes your heart and forgives you of every sinful desire, sinful thought, sinful action, sinful word. All your sins in Christ are forgiven. We often agree with this when we think about what we classify as smaller sins. Although the sheer amount of them should stagger us. But such a statement is true even for what we would call greater sins. The murderer is forgiven because all sin in Christ is forgiven. The affair you've had on your spouse. The addiction you're stuck in right now. For the one who's committed assault. For the one who has committed rape. For the one who has aborted a baby. For the one who's been divorced. From the one who's abandoned their children. In Christ, all trespasses are forgiven. And how great is the grace of our God that no sin stands a chance against His forgiving power. That's important for you and I to understand and to think on for just a moment. Because the enemy would love to accuse you of your worst sins and love for you to exist in your regret. And a world around us would love to point out your hypocrisy and your faithlessness. And what makes all those things even more stinging is we know them to be true, don't we? We know even better than the world around us. The wickedness of our own hearts and the things that we've done and the acts that we've committed and the things we hide from others, including our spouse, including our best friend, including our our children. We know the wretchedness of the inside, right? God's people rejoice. All trespasses are forgiven in Jesus. The lowest point of who you are, that is the point. Christ came to die for. He didn't come for you at your best. He came for you at your worst. And we have been made alive together with God because God has forgiven all those things which first made us dead. He's taken care of them. And He's removed them. And He's dealt with them. And every ounce in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is gone. How has He forgiven us? The progression continues into verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That word cancel literally means to wipe away. We see it in Genesis chapter 6 in the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, many, many moons ago. 
uh, in Genesis chapter 6 talking about the flood. In our Bibles, it uses the word blot out, which is an an apt rendering. It can also mean wipe away. God's wiping away uh, sinful humanity in the flood. We also see it in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 21 when it says in heaven, God will wipe away every tear. In both of those passages, we see a permanence. God wiped out the human race in the flood. Minus eight. And that was a permanent act. And in Revelation, when God wipes away our tears in heaven, that's a permanent act. And in Colossians 2, when God cancels our sin, He wipes them away, that's a permanent act. He canceled this record of debt that stood against us. The literal translation of that phrase is handwritten document or hand-signed document. It often referred to in biblical times of a handwritten note by the debtor recording his debt. God has wiped away this long list of debt that we've written in our own handwriting. That long list of debt stands against us. It condemns us. Again, take note of the personal nature of it. It condemns you. It condemns me. It condemns us. This long list of your sin, this long handwritten signed document where you have failed God, you were in debt to God to render Him glory and obedience and you have failed And your failure is written in your own blood. It's written in your own hand. And it's signed. And it stands over you, looming over you as this this crushing burden. And one day you are going to have to give an account of this looming debt that even more so you can never hope to pay. It's, It's too high. It has legal demands in it too. That literally means decrees. That hearkens us to the law of God. The decrees of God. And we know what the legal decrees of God's law are. If you can't keep it, you're punished. If you can't keep it, you're unrighteous. Then God's justice means it has to be dealt with. Sin is not allowed to be ignored. And we see that in our own day, right? No judge worth his weight or her weight is going to ignore sin. Or ignore law breaking. How much more an infinitely holy God? Sin must be justfully dealt with. That's that's Romans chapter 3, verse 26. So we have this long list, this long handwritten, hand-signed record of debt condemning us with these legal decrees embedded in it saying, if you don't pay, here's the collateral and it's your life. That's looming over us. And here comes God, and He permanently wipes it away. A a better illustration for us might be erasing it. And when we erase something, it's gone, right? It's no longer there. It's removed forever. God has erased. God has 
wiped away this record of debt that was looming over you and its legal demands, its legal decrees. And he did so, how, verse 14, by setting it aside, nailing it to the cross. God takes the hammer. God takes the nail. God pins your record to the wood. God leaves it there and makes sure it's secured and stays. And God wipes it clean, erases it with the blood of His own Son. It's not our sins so much that keep Jesus on the cross. It's God that keeps Jesus on the cross. And He does so that your record of debt might be pinned there and paid. How does God justfully erase your record of debt? It's because on His Son, He paid it in full. It's because in Jesus... All your debts were reconciled. All your debts before God dealt with. Christ took on every ounce. If every ounce is forgiven, then Christ has paid it all. Christ drank in the wrath of God so that you might be forgiven. So let's follow real quickly the sequence here. Verse 13, you're dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of of your flesh. The acts you commit and the the state of your soul, you're dead before God, separated from Him, uh, having to give an account to Him. But God intervenes. He initiates and He acts by His own pleasure. And He accomplishes by His own pleasure. And He unites you to His Son, Jesus, and makes you alive. And He does that by having wiped out, forgiven all your trespasses, by by erasing your record of debt. Your long list of debt. And He did so by becoming sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has paid your debt. Very quickly, verse 15, there are there's still some other implications here of such a forgiveness. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. These rulers and authorities are the same ones referenced in verse 10. When Paul said earlier that Christ is the head of all rule and authority, His headship is now expressed in verse 15. There are these sinful rulers and authorities, Satan and the enemy of God and His people as referenced in Ephesians chapter 6. And God has disarmed them. He's taken away their weapon. And what is their weapon? F2. Death and accusation. God has dealt with both. God has taken away, 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death. And God has taken away the pain of accusation. Why? Because we're no longer dead. And we are entirely forgiven. There's nothing to accuse. He's disarmed these rulers and He's put them to open public shame by triumphing over them in Him. A phrase we find in 2 Corinthians. It's a a phrase that hearkens the Roman victory uh, victory procession. When a general comes back from conquering a 
another army or another land. He's paraded through the streets with shouts and celebrations. And he's leading his captives behind him in chains. Loud chains to draw spectacle. God is saying, I have done the same to your enemy, to my enemy in Christ. I parade them through the streets as my captives. Weaponless. Disarmed. What does that mean? That means in Christ, we are free people. We've been liberated to the fullest. No longer are we bound by sin, and no longer are we under the accusation of the enemies. We're free, we're forgiven and alive, and we live in the liberty of Christ. John MacArthur summarized this passage really well as complete salvation. He talks about in verse 11 and 12, the transformation of Christ. In verses 13 and 14, he talks about the pardon of Christ. And in verse 15, he talks about the victory of Christ. And he says, those things make complete salvation. And he's right. We're a people transformed by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, and victorious in Jesus. We have our complete salvation in Jesus. We don't need to turn to any other false teaching. We don't need to turn to any other source. We need to cling to Christ and celebrate and live as God's redeemed people. Let your hearts be circumcised, verse 11 and 12. Turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you might be made alive, having your debt wiped away and paid. Verses 13 and 14. And then live in the freedom and grace that God has provided through His Son. Serving Him eagerly. Glorifying Him with your life because of the victory that He secured in verse 15. We have a comprehensive salvation. Where God has acted completely on our behalf to address our greatest need and bring us to a place we could never imagine. Let me wrap up by saying for some of you, only part of this is true. Some of you have not yet turned to Christ. And the only part of this text that's true for you is that you're still dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But you don't have to be. I can plead with all my might, but until you lay down your pride and the Spirit of God works in your heart, you won't realize the significance of what God offers through His Son, Jesus. Let me only say this. You don't have to be dead anymore. You don't have to have your record of debt looming over you. You can be completely, totally, comprehensively forgiven. Christian, you know without a shadow of a doubt you've been saved by the grace of God. What does a text like this demand of us? If not devotion, gratitude, and adoration, and worship. What are we doing if we don't realize how far God has brought us and how much He's done for us and secured for us? What are we doing if we don't return that in praise and thanksgiving and in complete devotion? In every area of our lives. That's the calling for us. To celebrate this 
comprehensive salvation by comprehensively giving Him our lives. Letting Him be glorified in every area. It's hard to summarize a text like this. I hope God's Spirit keeps pressing it into your heart. Father, no man can communicate the depth or the desperateness of who we were apart from You in the sin of our lives. And no man can adequately convey the, the transformation that we undergo through the, the work of Your Son. What a thought. A glorious Gospel thought to go from death to life. And to know in our hearts that we are sinful and yet to say with faith that all our trespasses have been forgiven and erased. We're no longer captives. We're no longer separated from You. We're free. We're alive. And we're Yours. Thank You, God. Would you take a moment and just think upon this text this morning? How does it apply to your life? Is it true for you? What does it demand of you? Lord, it's a glorious text. Don't let the echo of it stop this morning. Bring it to our hearts and minds until we are conformed by it. In Jesus' name, Amen.